Uh, I think it's my personal favourite too, actually. It was a much simpler world in 1978, it seems to me. Um, I'm glad to be here to talk to you about some of the legal questions arising as a consequence of the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis, because I realise I actually have an awful lot of questions, and I'm hoping that perhaps you can help provide some of the answers, or at least point me in the directions uh, that I need to go. The, the area of refugee studies has certainly grown immensely. It is, I realise, 40 years ago this year that I joined the office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, 1976. And it was an easier world in many respects. The, the Cold War uh, took the burden of choices off of states in many respects, and it made it much easier very often to promote solutions for refugees than it is today. It was a much less securitized world as well, and uh, although states have always been concerned about the security implications of refugees and to some extent of migration also, uh, it wasn't a matter that was as high up on the international agenda as it is today. But when we look at what's happening in Syria and the consequences of the conflict, one can certainly see how there are many areas of legal inquiry that need to be opened up. The question of state responsibility for population displacement has never really been explored from an international law perspective, even though we can see uh, elements of obligation in the body of international humanitarian law and in international human rights law. Likewise, the responsibility of non-state actors in relation to population displacement has likewise not been developed. And third, state responsibilities, their rights and interests, whether uh, they have any, 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 uh, any, any, any role to claim a right to, humane, to intervene on humanitarian grounds or whether they have a right to provide humanitarian assistance is still, of course, a contested issue. Refugee rights, though, of course, remain very much uh, a focal point for anyone researching this area or working in this area. Uh, and the issues that were current in 76 and indeed in earlier decades, admission and reception, asylum and rights and solutions in return, have certainly not gone away. We have, I think, seen an, an increased uh, amount of attention being paid to the issue by the international community at large, considered through the United Nations. Uh, refugee flows are now seen and have been since the early 90s as potentially liable to affect international peace and security, which might open the way to a uh, more effective security council, a uh, uh, more sec effective security council role on in dealing with causes. Um, but we haven't seen what I think many of us hoped would develop uh, in those in those early years, the 90s. It hasn't come about. Um, what is the law relating to uh, refugees as in, in crises such as the Syrian one? I mean, there are many questions. I've, I've flagged a few of them. The, the question of the responsibilities of the parties to a non-international armed conflict, the applicability, implementation, effectiveness, efficacy of guiding principles on internal displacement and the like. And then, of course, we, when we get to external displacement, what are the liabilities, what are the obligations, what are the responsibilities of the states involved, in particular the state of origin, Syria? Back in, in 1939, um, Robert Jennings published an article in the British Yearbook of International Law. This, of course, was at a time of exodus from Nazi Germany, in which he argued uh, that there ought to be a principle of liability attaching to the state which causes a section of its population to flee, to leave, uh, in a state of poverty, and thereby and thereafter to impose themselves on another state, which state is then uh, has to carry the costs. He framed that liability under the concept of abus de droit, abuse of right. 
And despite my hard schooling in the positivism of Ian Brownlee, I nonetheless still tend, even these years, many years later, to go back to this, this notion of abus de droit as containing potentially something of value, even though, as we know from our, our review of the jurisprudence and practice over the last decades, it hasn't really gained much, much traction. But why is it that refugee displacement is not um, a typical injury-loss scenario, one that generates state responsibility and entails the usual corresponding and consequential obligations, cessation of conduct, compensation and the like? Is it perhaps because of the politics? And I'm rather afraid that that is what has, as it were, skewed the field over many decades, that states have been only too content to put actual or potential legal rights and obligations to one side in the interest of pursuing uh, a political agenda. Nonetheless, there has been, I think, a very substantial and important development in the law in relating, relating to the treatment of refugees, if not in the law relating to the relations between states over refugee issues. And in particular, and refugee scholars go on about this all the time, of course, we've seen the consolidation of a basic principle of protection non-refoulement, which first occurred in a 1933 treaty and was reiterated a couple of times during that decade, but never really took off until uh, the, the time of the United Nations. It's a principle which encompasses the obligation of the state not to send back, and indeed not to reject at the frontier, someone who would, if so rejected, be exposed to the risk of persecution or other serious relevant harm. And it is a very powerful principle. And I think that helps to explain why many states are so keen to ensure that it doesn't arise, that it isn't triggered by the appearance on their doorstep of a refugee or asylum seeker. And a lot of state measures introduced over the last two, three decades have been precisely designed uh, to frustrate movement in search of asylum. Hence the regime of carrier sanctions, the elaborate uh, regime of visa requirements and the like, all intended uh, to make it more difficult uh, for those in need of protection uh, to travel to seek protection. So one can't be too, I think, um, too optimistic about states in relation to their attitudes to those who do, who do need protection. Let's turn to have a look at Syria for a moment. Um, oh Get this right one day. Um, this is the latest map I could find from the UNHCR. It's updated uh, as of, I think, May or March or May of this year. And the date will be somewhere. And it tells us, I think, something quite shattering, that there are 4,815,868 registered Syrian refugees in Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and other countries, March 2016. A phenomenal number of civilians of the population of Syria have been displaced. And when you couple that with internal displacement as well, it's certainly well over half of Syria's population who have been displaced as a consequence of, of, this, of this conflict. And you can see from the map alone, and you probably know from reading the papers, where most of them have gone. I mean, 2.7 million are in Turkey, for example. Uh, over a million are in Lebanon. That's more than 25% of Lebanon's population are presently Syrian refugees. Jordan, 639,000. Uh, Egypt, 118,000. Iraq, Iraq itself is uh, a country, part of much of which is still in conflict, 246,000. 
So a fantastic dispersal of Syrians in search of refuge, in search of, of asylum. And the greater number of those Syrian refugees are, in fact, below the age of 17. About 50%, nearly 50% of those Syrian refugees are uh, below the age of 17. I mention that because you may have read in the papers about how families very often are seeking, uh, are leaving Turkey and other countries of first refuge in order to get education for their children. In Turkey, there are 800,000 Syrian refugee children of school age who are not in school. And I suggest to you that if you are a parent and you have children in that category, you will be thinking not first perhaps about your own future, but about your children's future. And if you can't see them getting an education where they are, uh, you may well be inspired to move on uh, to somewhere else. Just while I'm on the numbers, I'll go through a few of the others that affect Europe in particular at the moment. This reminds us that the flow hasn't stopped, even though there is this supposed deal between the EU and Turkey. There have been this year 188,000 arrivals by sea and an estimated 1,357 uh, dead or missing. And this is a, these are the figures dated to 13th of May. Um, most of them have been going into Greece, as you can see, 155,000 already this year, uh, but also 31,000 crossing the central Mediterranean route uh, into Italy and 1,000 more uh, into Spain. So the movement hasn't stopped. It has certainly been curtailed as a result of the EU-Turkey deal. Uh, but the, the numbers arriving, I was in Athens just last week, the numbers arriving are now in their hundreds per day as opposed to in the thousands. So uh, we have by no means seen an end to that movement. Syria, of course, tops the countries of origin for those seeking asylum in the European Union, as you can see. But it is followed by other countries which are hardly models of stability. Uh, Afghanistan, Iraq uh, are certainly high amongst the source countries for European applications for asylum. Uh, Kosovo and Albania are sources of applications. Uh, mostly are, they are rejected. Um, Eritrea, though, is a major uh, source country of recognised refugees in Europe at the present time. But the numbers, as you can see, the highest numbers, Syria, uh, are then followed by Afghanistan and Iraq. And of the main nationalities granted asylum, Syria, Eritrea, Iraq, Afghanistan and Iran. And nearly 300,000 asylum applications approved in Europe in 2020. 2015, with the top claims granted by country, Germany ahead, as you, as you might expect. I mean, the number re reflects decided cases, not, of course, all the, the numbers of Syrians who have been accepted by Germany in, in recent months, uh, followed by Sweden, Italy, France, Netherlands, and actually the UK. That's just a reminder. I'm going to leave that up there. I'm going to leave that up there because when we talk about an end to the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, if there is peace tomorrow, there is not suddenly going to be a return. This is Homs. It's a bit like Germany was at the end of the Second World War. There is going to be, there's going to, we are going to need a massive rebuilding and investment program if we are to enable uh, the nearly five million externally displaced to return in safety, dignity, and with some opportunity uh, for a new life to their, their country of origin. Now, just to um, go back to the law for a moment, there's something that's always slightly niggled me, has worried me, has been at the back of my mind, and that's in this particular context of international refugee law, it's the issue of, of contingency. Uh, 
Um, and contingency is not something that I think we as international lawyers like to think of as relevant in the legal relations between states uh, or between states and individuals. I think many of us like obligations to be clear-cut, and if we grew up in the Hofeldian tradition as well, we'd like to see bright lines joining this duty uh, to that right and so forth. But in the refugee uh, protection context, we find um, a regime, and I'm going to say something more about regime in a moment, um, that while it accommodates certain powerful rules like non-refoulement, also at the same time contextualizes it by calling upon states to engage cooperatively in the pursuit of solutions, uh, to act, as it were, beyond the rule. And that tends to suggest, and it indeed has been stated, um, that the willingness of one state to fulfill its obligations might well be contingent or indeed dependent on the willingness of others to, to back it up. And this was actually recognized in 1951. Um, a couple of states at the Geneva Conference in 1951, which adopted the, the basic refugee treaty, um, expressed concern about whether they could abide by the principle of non-refoulement if they were to be faced with large numbers of refugees. Now, that concern at the time was sort of assuaged, to, to some extent at least, by uh, the reference to the expectation that there would be institutions and international mechanisms in place to help states out. And indeed, in 1951, they could see, could these states, that there had just been established an office, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which perhaps precisely would fill that role. It would support states in, their, in the practicalities engaged in meeting their international obligations. But the issue of contingency has certainly not gone away. And interestingly, over the years, it's been Turkey that has made some very considered and very, very, very sensible references to the importance of contingency or the importance of cooperation and support in the context of the regime. And uh, it did this back in 1987, quite very eloquently, at a time when it was admitting very large numbers of refugees from the Iran-Iraq war, admitting refugees from both sides, Iraq and Iran. And when European states were certainly doing nothing to help Turkey meet its obligations, obligations, incidentally, which didn't have a basis in the 51 Convention, because Turkey has ratified that with a geographical limitation, recognizing only European refugees, but had its basis in, I would argue, customary international law, but nonetheless in a context in which Turkey would certainly be entitled to expect support. Um, and Turkey's references to as it were, the contingency point, were driven by uh, the attitude of certain European states, Sweden in particular, um, claiming that really Turkey should not let people pass through Istanbul, buy this or that useful document and travel on uh, to the Nordic countries. Uh, Turkey's view, rather sensibly, was that this was, this was self-solution on the part of, of imaginative uh, uh, refugees, that it was all helping to lighten the burden. Um, interestingly, as a result of this intervention and these, these problems, a number of states, uh, the US, Canada and Australia, did come in and start taking Iran, Iranian and Iraqi refugees, but Europe, uh, Europe I'm afraid, didn't, didn't do much at the time. Now, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees Office was set up by a General Assembly resolution in 1950. It is a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly. So technically speaking, I suppose it's not an international organization in its own right, but it is uh, a, a, a sub-organ, if you like, of the UN itself. 
And it was set up by the General Assembly with a specific mandate to provide international protection to refugees and working together with governments to seek permanent solutions to the problem of refugees. It's a nice sort of englobing and slightly ambiguous phrase which uh, says a lot but nothing that's really very concrete because quite clearly the UN through UNHCR cannot itself provide asylum, it cannot provide re resettlement, uh, it has to rely upon states for that uh, but it cannot likewise oblige states to come to the party, it can only work together with governments and that's really what it's been doing ever since muddling through from year to year from crisis to crisis but nonetheless it has become, and here I come back to the regime point, it has become very much a linchpin uh, in this international refugee regime. And by regime, what I'm thinking of is not just a couple of treaties, because we have those. We have the 51 Convention, then supplemented by the 67 Protocol. They usually refer to together. It's more than just a couple of treaties, because we have an international, what I will call an international organization, UNHCR, we have an international forum for discussion of refugee issues in what's known as the UNHCR Executive Committee, now comprising 98 states, so quite a, very, quite a substantial body. Uh, in addition, we have an, an agency that's involved on the ground in field operations. There are 125 UNHCR offices throughout the world, 9,000 staff. They do a lot of, of, of service delivery. We have uh, in UNHCR a role recognised for it to engage in a measure of treaty supervision, not quite as developed as you'll find in the human rights treaties, but nonetheless it does have a responsibility to oversee states' fulfilment of their obligations. We have an organisation which I would argue also is, is responsible to its mandate, although there's an interesting area which I think needs development, uh, UNHCR has, in my view, on occasions acted outside or beyond its mandate, sometimes to the detriment of, of refugees' interests. Where do you hold an organisation like that to account? This, of course, is a very current issue, and I've had a couple of doctoral students who have successfully argued in their theses that we need to see a revision of uh, the, the questions of international organisation responsibility in, in these and related areas. And then we have UNHCR as an actor in the, in the field of public international law. Now, I'm not sure what Michael Wood would say about that. In fact, he's probably sceptical about the role which an organisation like UNHCR can play in the development of customary international law. I actually think it has a particularly important role because it is able to adopt positions on issues of law and practice and then, in effect, to, see, to wait and see what happens. And on many occasions, it has attempted to push the envelope on the, un, on the meaning of, of, of of rules like non-refoulement, and sat back to see what happened. Very often there's been no complaint. Sometimes the US has protested, but very often other states have not. They've said, yeah, that's, that's okay. We, we do accept that the idea of the principle of non-refoulement applies on the high seas, not just uh, on, on the territorial borders of a state. So UNHCR is, is, an, is certainly an actor. Its actions by and of itself may not create uh, customer international law, but they can contribute to it by... By, by no means, by, by, by every means, certainly. Now, what do these two basic treaties do? First of all, a, reading, a quick reading of them will, I think, suggest to you that they are a bit out of date, and they do have a sort of immediate post-World War ring to them. They talk about things that uh, 
being required, standards of treatment being required for, for refugees, which we would think are rather outdated, largely because human rights has come along and told us that everyone has to be treated more or less the same, except in certain recognized exceptions. But what they do that's critically important, first and foremost, is they lay down a refugee definition. And that is the definition that plenty of you will be familiar with in terms of, I'll turn this off now, in terms of a person being outside their country who has a well-founded fear of persecution on certain grounds, race, religion, nationality, social group, or political opinion. And they also establish what I've already mentioned, they lay down in the treaty the principle of non-refoulement. But refugee law doesn't stop there. Over the years, it was recognized by states that they needed, they wanted to provide protection to a broader category of individuals. So those who perhaps couldn't show that individually they had a well-founded fear of persecution, but they could show that if they were sent back to their country, they would be at risk of other uh, relevant harm or they would face uh, injury uh, risks consequential upon armed conflict. And both those protection threads, the, the persecution thread and the protection from, from relevant harm thread, are reflected uh, in the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, for example, and they've been built upon by the EU in its legislation uh, in pursuit of the, of the so-called common European uh, asylum system. Now, when we go a little more deeply into the European Union, um, we find some interesting developments, at least in theory. We find that we can identify what, for want of a better phrase, I call certain organizing principles, which the EU has adopted as a basis for its policy and practice on asylum and migration. And that's actually a, a, a juncture which I think is important always to bear in mind, that they are now asylum and migration are inseparable. The UNHCR always used to argue for their, for their division. That migration was over there, nothing to do with us, it's all about economics, we are only concerned with the refugee. That was always unrealistic from a practical operational perspective and is increasingly unrealistic in, in today's world. But within the EU, the EU has formally adopted certain principles, organizing principles, with a view to developing a common policy. And it begins with the idea of mutual assistance, what the Treaty on the European Union calls the principle of sincere cooperation. I've never come across that phrase in any other treaty. The principle of sincere cooperation, if only it worked out like that. Um, it's in Article 4.3 of the Treaty on the European Union, and I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's it, it, maybe, maybe one day we'll be able to write a thesis on sincere cooperation, but I don't think we have enough practice quite yet. But if you move on to the next treaty, the one on the functioning of the European Union, you find that that notion of sincere cooperation is, to a degree, developed further uh, by the treaty's invocation of the principle of solidarity. Solidarity and fair sharing of responsibility. Now, these are very interesting concepts, and they are entirely appropriate to a union which is determined to have a, an asylum, a refugee protection policy that is common throughout uh, the land that is the region. Cooperation, solidarity, fairness, fair sharing of responsibility. They they'd sort of connote, and we are here stepping, I'm afraid, outside the legal dimension, aren't we? Sort of interlocking and reciprocal duties uh, 
community individual entitlements and expectations. Um, and that probably is too optimistic as well. Um, because when we then put those words to one side and ask ourselves, well, what's actually going on? Uh, then we find that despite the wealth of European and other experience, um, political reality has just not lived up to these, these ideals. There are quite distinctly and quite definitely holes uh, in the system. And those holes and the challenges which they produce are by no means limited to Europe. They, they reflect, and this is where I do begin to get why, they reflect gaps in the system, in the regime as a whole, which I, which I think potentially could threaten the regime as a whole. And I think one can gather, one can see where they emerge. If we remind ourselves that the two basic treaties, what are they? They are treaties which are, um, concerned, which are relating to the status of refugees. They are not treaties about the refugee problem at large. They, are, they were treaties drafted specifically to focus upon the treatment of the refugee generally speaking, after he or she has been recognised. So they're not dealing with movements between states. And what they didn't do was identify, and what they still don't do, is identify, well, which state is responsible in which context for which refugee. And the second thing they didn't do, because they weren't intended to, they didn't identify which state or states should contribute, for example, to the costs borne by Turkey or, or Iraq or Kenya or whatever. So they left that whole issue to one side. And the, the irony is that the Secretary General, the UN Secretary General in 1950, when asked to contribute to the drafting of the 51 Convention, emphasised that cooperation would be crucial in this, emerging, this new emerging refugee regime. And he proposed, but unsuccessfully, he proposed an article specifically committing states to support first asylum countries by taking a certain number of refugees. States didn't want it. They rejected those draft articles, and there's just a general recommendation in the, in the final act of the convention, and we are paying the cost of that still to this day. But does that perhaps tell us, if we are still paying the cost of that, something crucial about states in their, in their view of the refugee uh, phenomenon? States have also been unwilling over the years to ever to accept that the individual has a right to be granted asylum. Yes, they are bound by the principle of non-refoulement, but they have still held back from accepting that the individual as such has a right to be granted asylum. There are exceptions at the regional level and, and in domestic law, but uh, at the universal level, uh, the right to asylum, although it was debated in 48, at the time of the Universal Declaration, then through the 50s and the 60s, uh, has never been accepted by states as something uh, to which the individual could lay, could lay claim. Now, despite the gap in the, in, the, uh, in the formal regime, as I've said, the common European asylum system is supposed to be solidarity in action. And it's based upon what I call a generally worthy architecture. There's lots of legislation. Um, but on who is a refugee, on who should be entitled to subsidiary protection, and so forth, on <coughs> procedural guarantees and reception conditions. But it was constructed with little regard to what um, I think must be essential in a regional cooperative endeavour, and that is this issue of equitable responsibility sharing. And so what we have is a common system that is common only 
at a certain legislative level of legislation. We have agreed interpretations and so forth. But we don't have a centralized, truly European system, and the consequence is very often that nationality systems inevitably diverge. And you see that most particularly, or we have seen that most particularly, in what they call recognition rates. I mean, ideally, if you are a refugee from Iraq or a refugee from Syria, then your chances of being recognized in Greece will be identical to your chances of being recognized in Sweden. In the past, that was not the case. Greece is changing very rapidly, incidentally. But in the past, your chances as an Iraqi refugee of being recognized in Greece were about 0.1%, whereas in Sweden, they were something like 77%. Now, when you have a system like that, if you are an Iraqi refugee, then you are going to say to yourself, I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to move on. And I'd better take some advice on where my chances of being recognized are going to be best. What the, what the bureaucrats in Europe call asylum shopping, and they use that as a pejorative. But it's not. It's just common sense that if you are in flight from persecution or in flight from conflict, you are going to take many factors into account when you elect, when you decide, or you try to decide where it is that you want to put down your roots and, 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 and become an, uh, acquire a measure of security and stability. And recognition rates, as well as language, community, and so forth, are, are factors to be taken into account. So the, the system was never really completed by bringing in to the, Europe, the common European system uh, a measure of equitable sharing. And all that the states did through what's known as the Dublin Regulation was, on the one hand, something quite good. They identified, they came up with criteria to identify which state should be responsible for looking at a case. But they didn't then do anything formally to meet the challenges that would be faced by the so-called frontline states. Because what has happened, as we've seen, is that now that, that, that Greece and indeed in the past Turkey have been taking so many refugees and asylum seekers, Italy in particular, not Turkey, Italy and Greece, uh, Italy because in particular of its involvement in the Mare Nostrum rescue program during 2014-2015 and Greece because of its geographical uh, position in the world, um, the other European states are taking the, the view that the responsibility, for, basic responsibility for dealing with these claims to protection resides with those f countries of first entry into the European, European Union. And quite clearly that is a burden in, in, in numbers and financial terms which those, both those countries have had great difficulty in, in meeting. And I'm afraid that we've seen evidence of this lack of interest in coming to the party in providing support and solidarity um, over the years. Back in the 1990s, Germany was the preferred destination for refugees from the breakup of former Yugoslavia and then from Kosovo. And it asked its fellow member states in the European Union, could you lend a hand, take a few of these off our, uh, 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 for us? And everyone said, sorry, can't hear you. Um, Italy, likewise, on the occasion of Mare Nostrum, uh, in, time and time again asked other European states to support its policy of rescue and disembarkation by accepting responsibility uh, for those arriving. Again, the silence was deafening. So it's hardly surprising that countries like Italy, like Greece, at those moments of, of lack of support, were not perhaps so inclined to fingerprint everyone, to photograph everyone, uh, to do anything more but point the way to the nearest railway station north, um, which was, I think, very understandable. So the response in Europe has been, I think, chaotic and, I would say, unprincipled, uh, or at any rate not oriented either to effective protection 
or lasting solutions. And I think in measure, in no small measure, that's due to the fact that many European states uh, are indeed concerned to keep refugees out of the EU in particular. So we find the European Council identifying the, the following objectives. Stem the flow, protect external borders, reduce illegal migration, safeguard Schengen, and implement the action plan for Turkey as quickly as we can. Turkey uh, is seen as being the source of irregular flows which are still, uh, still too high. And following up on that, more recently, uh, we find the European Commission, yes, coming up with some proposals for reform of the system, but reform that will change nothing essentially. The Dublin system will be maintained. So the principle of frontline first uh, state responsibilities to make, be maintained. So Greece and Italy, I hope you're listening. Um, the Commission is proposing to compensate those states if the number of arrivals goes above a certain level um, with the promise of a, a supplementary, what they call it, a corrective fairness mechanism um, or with a financial alternative if you're a member state that doesn't want to participate in, 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 re, in relocating refugees and asylum seekers or in resettling them. And the Commission has proposed... I think a high, good example of wishful thinking that, um, say, Hungary or Poland, if they don't want to participate in the, the redistribution scheme, should pay €250,000 per person above whatever level they are assessed as being liable for. I somehow don't see that as flying, but nonetheless. Um, there is a, something of an effort there to, to, to bring in these uh, recalcitrant states into a common, a common system. I, I'm afraid it's not going to get very far. But the third and more worrying uh, aspect of these proposals for reform is, is that the Commission suggests hardening what I call responsibility avoidance mechanisms. Um, that's to say by um, returning refugees and asylum seekers to first countries, what they call first countries of asylum, safe third countries, and if applicable to states which are deemed to be safe countries of origin. So basically what we're going to see if it goes through is more decision avoidance. Uh, and it is, the focus is going to be on what they call admissibility. And this indeed is what Greece is being required to do at the moment. It is being required to assess whether any new irregular arrivals from Turkey are admissible. And if they're not admissible, it is required to return them to Turkey. In fact, I understand from the Hellenic Asylum Service that actually very large numbers of those who have been arriving since the agreement are being found to be admissible which I think is going to suggest another challenge for, for Europe. Uh, Greece, there are interesting, some interesting things going on at Greece. And I mean, I, in my optimistic moments, I see it as potentially a model for the future. They have a, they've had, they completely revamped and revised their asylum service three years ago. And they put in charge of it someone who has a great deal of experience and who clearly is a very effective manager. And at the meeting that I was at in Athens last week, it was mentioned, and I hadn't noticed, that, that she had survived eight ministers and three governments, which I suppose is quite an achievement. Is it not, Antonius? <laughs> and what we're also seeing in Greece is that they're not, they are actually not on their own, that there is a, an, a, an EU agency called the European Asylum Support Office, which is actually channeling 
um, a stream of European experience, other European experienced officials in the asylum business to provide a basis for collaborative and cooperative decision making. And that's, that, to my mind, is potentially good. It would make an interesting thesis. It needs to be evaluated, certainly. Uh, but that seems to me to be the beginnings of a truly European approach, because I think that's what is sadly lacking in Europe, that we don't have a European approach. We just have 28 national approaches to what supposedly is a common system. Um, and there are going to be many legal questions arising from this proposal to offload refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, the proposal seeks to, and you can probably see this already, it seeks to exploit what you call an obligation gap. Um, arguably, the EU can say no one is being refooled. We're not sending anyone back to persecution. We're just sending them back to Turkey. Um, they're not going back to their country of origin. But of course, as we know from experience, there may well be, nonetheless, a violation involved of Article 4 of the Charter, the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights, or Article 3 of the European Convention, if return exposes the individual to the risk of inhuman or degrading treatment. And those of you who are familiar with the refugee crisis in Europe will perhaps be aware that so-called Dublin removals have been suspended uh, in various cases in relation to Greece, in relation to Italy, in relation to Hungary, because the conditions of reception in those countries were such as to amount to inhuman or degrading treatment. So the issue of liability is certainly not foreclosed by the, the EU-Turkey agreement. And the other element that I wanted to stress from a, a lawyer's perspective is um, that the proposal, the Commission's proposal, seek to uh, entrench a principle of transit state responsibility, which frankly doesn't exist in general international law. The idea that because someone in your country has transited through another country, that country should be obliged to take them back even if they're not a citizen, just doesn't exist. Although it's something that the EU wants to exist. And it does tend to try to include it in various agreements with third countries, with, with Turkey amongst, amongst others. So that, I think, from, from a European perspective, I mean, there are, there are lots of, uh, of issues like to arise. Many of them will be in court, I have no doubt. But on the broader international uh, front, uh, there is also, I think, a lot of room for, for, for new thinking. Um, safe havens. Now, they have a, they, they're a dirty word these days, aren't they, safe havens, because of Srebrenica and the like. But one of the greatest causes of displacement, of course, is conflict. And on the one hand, while much mustn't be done, I think, to prevent, mediate, and resolve conflict, there are related options which perhaps should not be left entirely out of the picture. It doesn't mean to say we necessarily have to go for them, but we need to think about them. And I don't think it helps to characterize a priori the safe haven as not workable, um, simply because it's failed in the past, Srebrenica being the most obvious example. There's, I think, a thesis to be written on the, uh, the no-fly zones introduced as a consequence um, controversial or contested consequence of Resolution 688 of 1991 adopted by the Security Council. There was an interesting proposal. This was when, uh, after the First Gulf War, Saddam turned his attention, amongst others, to the rebellious Kurds in the north. And faced with an imminent exodus of Kurdish uh, Iraqis towards Turkey, uh, the Security Council invited states to take certain humanitarian action, which they liberally interpreted as allowing the establishment of a no-fly zone. That effectively uh, prevented Saddam Hussein from carrying out military uh, adventures against the Kurdish minority in his country, and that therefore removed, you could argue, the cause or the necessity for flight. 
Um, the difficulty with safe havens, as uh, Michael Ignatieff argued not so long ago in the New York Review of Books, um, is that they require um, perimeter defence. Uh, it worked in northern Iraq for various reasons on the whole, but if one were to think about a safe haven in northern Syria, quite clearly you're going to have to have boots on the ground, and no state these days seems to, to want to think in those terms. Back in the 1990s, Sadruddin Aga Khan, a former High Commissioner for Refugees, who was responsible uh, for UN operations in this context, um, looked into the possibility of uh, providing a UN contingent in this so-called safe haven, not a contingent supplied by troop-contributing nations, but of UN, actual UN guards. And there was some interesting debate which went nowhere on whether that might be realisable. It might be something worth looking at again in the future. Uh, other areas that clearly need to be pursued, as I've in, uh, emphasised, the, is the challenge of responsibility, individual and collective. Um, I think it's highly unlikely that we're going to see a new treaty or indeed a protocol under which states commit themselves formally uh, to take refugees uh, or commit themselves to specific funding. But the funding for UNHCR is always a challenge. Um, the UNHCR's budget at the moment, I think, is $7 billion, which is almost exclusively drawn from voluntary contributions of states, and to some extent of uh, the private sector, but basically of states. Voluntary contributions. It seems to me that a measure, a formula should be found so that at least a percentage of that budget should, be, should come out of the, of the, of the UN uh, budget at large, and so that planning, therefore, could be, could be much more serious and uh, effective. I've also wondered uh, in a related area whether one couldn't think about using frozen assets. I did this with a, a young Turkish academic, uh, Sazak. We, we looked at the issue of whether you could, when you impose sanctions on a refugee-producing state, okay, we can discuss what that means, um, whether those sanctions couldn't actually, if they attached to frozen assets, if they attached to assets, couldn't be used uh, to contribute to the relief of the citizens of, of, of that country, which is the object of sanctions. Uh, it would carry a measure of, of, of justice, I think, along with it, uh, besides sending a message to, uh, to those countries which, whose policies and practices are producing refugees. And finally, in Europe, uh, I think there's, uh, there's a lot still to be done. My, I would argue, uh, idealistically, that what we need is a truly European policy. Uh, we need to take asylum and refugee protection out of the national level and put it on the EU level. And I think we need a European protection, uh, migration and protection agency to do that with a view to... And the logic of the European Union, if it's going to be, if, big if, uh, a region without internal borders, then it seems to me that a refugee recognised anywhere within that geographical space should be entitled to exercise his or her rights anywhere in that geographical space. But at the moment, states are really het up about what they call secondary movements. Uh, and I don't see any immediate future for that idealised version of a European refugee status. Perhaps, and this is another point I've been trying to argue, it could be developed on a pilot, as a pilot scheme amongst certain like-minded states on the, on the principle of enhanced cooperation. But I don't see much traction for that just at the present. However, we'll keep talking. So there are some of the, the questions which have emerged relating to the international refugee regime at large and Syrian refu refugee crisis in particular. Um, there are certainly many answers which have to, be, have to be found if we are to deal comprehensively with these sorts of situations in the future. Thank you.